First of all, let me say it's just uh, a pleasure for me to be here on this evening to just share with you for a brief moment. And on this evening, we're talking about racism in America. Uh, that can be a touchy subject, but if we're ever not make America great, but if we're ever going to be the America that our founding fathers intended us to be, then we're going to have to have the hard conversations, the hard conversations that make you uncomfortable. And so let me start by maybe making you a little bit uncomfortable by saying this. In Michael Eric Dyson's latest book, Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon for white America, listen to what he says. America's in trouble, a lot of trouble. Perhaps most of it has to do with race. Everywhere we turn, there's discord, there's division, death, destruction. When we survey the land, we, cannot, we see a country full of suffering that we cannot fully understand and a history that we can no longer deny. Slavery has cast a long shadow over not some of our lives, but all of our lives. There is a passage of scripture that I would like to read because I like to ground everything I do in, in scripture. Uh, there's a passage of scripture in the book of Micah, Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And it says these words. He has shown thee, O man, what is good and what doeth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly without God. Racism in America has been the fault, line, the fault line of our country's original sin. Some social scientists think that racism is the template for all other isms of oppression that work together to separate God's creation. The United States Civil Rights Commission defines racism as any attitude or institutional structure that subordinates a person or a group of people simply because of their skin color. There's another definition used by many anti-racist organizations and they say racism is race equal prejudice plus institution and systematic power. This way of dividing racism emphasizes that racism is not mer merely personal bigotry based on skin color, but racial prejudice combined with economic and political power. Let's talk about that for a moment. We have to have a good understanding of what racism is. One of the things I wanted to spell based on this definition, I hear people talk about black people are being racist. Black folks can't be racist. The reason that we can't be racist is because we don't control any systems. If we were controlling systems of power and we misuse that power to keep you where you are, then we could be racist. We can be prejudiced and we can be bigots, but we cannot be racist. Every aspect of America is touched by racism. 
All you have to do is look at what is happening in the Kansas City, Missouri school system, where the school system is now trying to, where they're trying to redistrict the school system. That's not for the good of those African-American children that are in the system, but it's to benefit those who are in power so they can keep their power and so that they can keep their control. This power is legitimized and institutionalized through society. Racism isolates, exploits, discriminates against certain people because of their race. Therefore, racism in America makes it virtually impossible unless we have a new imagination to do what Micah 6 and 8 says, to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. Throughout the last few years, America has sent out some dangerous and painful messages. And one message that they sent out is that only certain lives really matter. The message has been sent and is one that is clearly spelled out that the racial divide in America seems to be getting wider and wider. Rather than shrinking with education, it gets wider and wider. So now if you ask me why I think it gets wider and wider with, with all of the education and the access that we have, I think that racism is sin. Racism is demonic. Let me show you how racism plays out in our communities. So when I talk about sin, I talk about sin from at least three dimensions. The first dimension of sin is the kind of sin that makes church folks comfortable. And that's when we talk about the sin of lying, stealing, fornication, the sins those things that we do within our bodies that are not right. But I would suggest to you that there are at least two other dimensions of sin that are racist. One, you have what I call corporate sin. Corporate sin is seen all over Kansas City. All you have to do is ride in certain sections of the city and you see a payday loan here, a payday loan here, a pawn shop here, and a payday loan there. If you look into some of the convenience stores, they sell more malt liquor in those stores, but they're not selling the same volume over in Overland Park. So that's corporate sin. Corporate sin is the kind of sin that would target a community and pimp them by putting payday loans on every corner. And then you have what I call governmental sin. Governmental sin is the kind of sin where you have people that run for office, that make promises to you, and then will reject affordable health care, but yet and still they and their families benefit from world-class health care that their constituents are paying for. 
And so I think that what we have to do is understand that sin, the sin of racism, is all around us. As I just said, the message has been sent clearly and spells out that there is the divided America and that divide is growing with the deaths of Michael Brown, Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Sandra Bland, a host of others, is the result of racism, which includes the racist, racism of the Kansas City Police Department that has taken out one of our own, Ryan Stokes. America is a nation that has the nerve to have in its currency engraved in God we trust and we live and act in our political lives as if there's no God. The biggest sin is if and when you're in the room and you allow racist policies to get passed and you say nothing in the room, but when you get out of the room, you talk about how bad it is. But you are just as bad as they are because what you have to understand that I know that in order for you to be fair and equitable, I am asking you to give up some of your white privilege. Some of, some of y'all might say, no, we ain't gonna do that. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, you know, I get people calling me all the time wanting to talk about racism. And a lot of places I don't go because there's no need for you to talk to me about racism. Don't ask me to come help you figure out how, as a white person, you need to deal with your racist attitude. I'm not carrying that burden, that's on you. But whenever there is a community that I believe is seriously, that wants to engage in talking and then moving to action, I'm always ready to show up. The faith community, I believe, is the biggest culprit in racism because we have allowed political structures to hijack the moral standard of our faith. And we adjust and allow people to adjust. And so I would suggest to you that God is calling and, thou, and God has empowered the faith community to address racism, which has produced an inordinate amount of death in our time. Sometimes because you say nothing, you are just like the person who pulls the trigger. This empowerment of the faith community caused prophetic voices that would not serve culture, but who will call for a counterculture revolution, a revolution that gives us a prophetic imagination that provides us with a moral compass. And I just happen to believe 
that the Poor People's Campaign not is the only, but it is a moral compass, I believe, that God is using to call America, and I wish I could say back to who she should be, but calling America to be who I believe some really want America to be. I'm skeptical because people don't want to give up power. People want to be comfortable. It's okay, it's okay, yeah, it's okay, yeah, we'll march. We'll go to jail together. But when you have influence on your local city council person and the vote is four to four and you have influence, will you use your influence on that person to break the tie? You see, deep in my soul, I believe that America is longing for this moral compass. For those of us who are moved by the cries of our brothers and sisters, we know that just like justice, the act of caring for the vulnerable, embracing the stranger, healing the sick, protecting the worker, welcoming all folks in, regardless of skin color, regardless of ethnic background, Regardless if you're male or female, gay or straight, brown or white, everyone has to be, as you have said, at the open table. Now, let me share something with you about being at the table. I have been invited to a lot of tables. But on many instances when I'm invited to the table, it is a... That's the invitation to say we had him. And let me tell you how I find that out very early. When they want me to follow their agenda but not interested in mine. When you bring people to the table, you have to be willing to understand that they're not going to just accept everything that you put forth. If you're really about impacting this city, we're going to have to understand that our ideas are not always the best ideas. So, look, so let's look at what happened. We have children that have been regulated to the margins of our society. They're not even considered doing policymaking time. And we need to understand that these policy issues that are impacting all of us is not about the left or the right. It's not about a GOP or DNC. It's not about the red. It's not about the blue. But for me, it's about what's right and what's wrong. It is about what is evil. It is about what is good. It is about what is compassionate and what is non-compassionate. And I would suggest to you that we're going to have a right system, even in our political making process. We have to have compassion. 
for all of those people who are on the margins. Therefore, our job is to unpack the truth about extreme policies and show how they adversely impact all people. You know, if you are trying to keep me from getting power, you got to spend a lot of time and energy to keep me from getting power. Why not spend it on something else? Dr. King said a long time ago that rich people can still get rich if you take care of the poor. You just might not get as rich as quick. But if we are talking about an equitable America, America where everybody has an opportunity for life, you have to use your power to do whatever you can do to make things right. Now, today's racism is not like the racism of the Ku Klux Klan back in the 50s and the 40s. Today's racism is a new and improved racism that replaces the continual oppression of people of color by upholding white supremacy in ways that are more subtle, more indirect, and more influenced than ever before. This new form of racism has been so subtle that it has reached the boiling point in cities all across America. Cities such as Ferguson, Missouri, Baltimore, Maryland. And I believe that as a people of faith, God wants to use us to usher America into a new and alternative lifestyle that lines up with Micah 6 and 8. But let me tell you something that you might not know. See, Ferguson is not that far away. But because I'm the president of the NAACP, I get an opportunity to find out about situations that are happening in some of our surrounding cities that you may not know. Granville is a Ferguson waiting to happen. Raytown is a Ferguson waiting to happen. See, Ferguson is not that far away because Ferguson is right down the street. We have Baltimore, Maryland. So there was this Unitarian minister, I love him, by the name of Theodore Parker. And Theodore Parker, this Unitarian minister, theologian, abolitionist, predicted the inevitability success of the abolitionist cause in this way. Listen to what he says. He says, I do not pretend to understand the moral universe, for the ark is a long one. And my eyes reach but a little ways. I cannot calculate the curve on or complete the figure by experience of sight, but I can divine it by consciousness. And from what I see, I'm sure, y'all know what it says, it bends towards justice. 100 years later, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King proud phrased these words when he said that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Me, the Reverend Dr. Rodney Williams, just want to add my little two cents to that. 
And I would suggest to you that although the arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice, there are certain times in American history where the arc needs help in bending. I think we're in that time now. I think those individuals with power, with influence, with prestige, I think God is calling you to help bend the arc towards freedom and justice for all people. I believe he's calling you to help bend the arc that every child in America, whether black, white, or brown, gets a fair education. I believe God is calling you to bend the arc that the LBGT community can walk down the street and feel safe and not feel harm simply because we look at them as being different. It's time for all of us to bend the arc. I think I have about five minutes. <laughs> Michael 6 and 8, he that has showed thee, O man, what is good and what doeth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. What Micah is talking about is that God has a desire for humanity to have a genuine heartfelt relationship with God and one with another. So I think our relationship with God might be off keel. Because if we're in proper relationship with God, then we can be in proper relationship with others. But if we're not in proper relationship with others, we certainly are not in proper relationship with God. So all of the churches and the mosques and the temples that we have around, if we are not building authentic relationship, what are we doing? It says do justice. Justice is not a symbolic act, but rather is real and meaningful. On Wednesday, June 17th, 2015, the assassination of nine lives took place at the Emmanuel Amy Church in Charleston, South Carolina. As a result of that, about a month later, the governor of South Carolina signed a bill with nine pens representing each family member. After the bill was signed to take down the Confederate flag, they gave these nine pens to each family. When I look at this, I had a conversation with a person that you all know, William Barber, and then he put out an article. and. And we talked about that thing. And one of the things I'm going to suggest to you is that why is it that black lives matter after black death occurs? Why is it that the NAACP was picketing and boycotting for 15 years for that stuff to come down, but after black folks die? So what I'm suggesting is this. No more symbolic action. Because if you're going to do justice, it's not a symbolic act. It's a lifestyle. It's where you live. When you're in front of a lot of people or when you're in the dark boardroom by yourself. Open for questions or comments. Now, I do have some more notes. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. I'm just playing. Yes, sir. Do you have a feel for what's going to be happening soon after the 40 days 
Um, I, I think I do, but I don't know if it's right. Uh, right now, one of the things that Dr. Barbara and Liz Theo Harris is talking about is that we're flying this plane as we go, building plane as we're flying. And knowing Dr. Barbara the way I know Dr. Barbara, I, I do know that he's very, very concerned with voter registration. And I would think with all of these upcoming elections that are coming forth, because one of the uh, purposes of the Poor People's Campaign was for us to organize in our cities to build deeper relationships. And so I'm thinking, I'm hoping, I'm praying that we're going to be working hard in voter registration as well as voter mobilization. Because that's one thing, we can get people registered to the vote, to vote, but we have to mobilize them and get them out to the polls because there are so many incentives with these new uh, voter suppression laws that, that really uh, deter folks from voting. And I, I'm still one that believes that there's power at the ballot box. Yes, Gwen. Yeah. It's a protest. It's a I agree with you. I think it's a big mistake because you may be, your not vote, your no vote or your absent vote indirectly can be a vote for that which you don't want to happen. Yes, sir, in the back. I, I think everyone here is probably on board with what you're saying. Um, but what are, say, three to five things you could tell your average person who lives in the prairie village? What can they do? You say justice is a lifestyle, but what are, say we encounter people who say, okay, well, what does that mean? Okay. What, what are some things that we can tell people who aren't as interested as the people in this room are? What can you do? Well, that's a hard question. Well, <laughs> but, 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 but what I think, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but what I think we can do is this. First of all, we have to see people as completely human beings. Our constitution in America at one point said that African-Americans, no, I'm sorry, they said that the Negro was three-fifths of a person. Unfortunately, we still have that same mentality. So we have to show people the humanity in other people. I think the next, one of the other things we have to do, I think I may have hit it pretty quickly, but that is when we are in positions of authority, we need to ask the question, why isn't so-and-so here? I've noticed in the last three meetings, everybody in the meeting looks like us. So what are you doing to bring some diversity in? Do you want diversity? And then I think, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna say his name, but probably my best friend in Kansas City is a guy by the name of Rabbi Doug Alpert. Rabbi Alpert and I are friends. And the way we got to be friends is we sat down and decided that we were going to go to breakfast. And I didn't want to go where he wanted to go. <laughs> because I said, I don't know if I want to eat that food. But I went. And for the past four and a half, almost five years, we have been friends. And so if you can take time and get to know people, I'm not talking about super, superficially. So you may come here and get to know people on a superficial level. But you got to get to understand what makes people tick. What is it that I know what keeps Doug Alpert up at night? He knows what keeps me up at night. So if he calls me to do something for him, I'm going to be there. If I call him, he's going to be there. So I think we have to build relationships. 
Yes. In response to that last question, I'd like to reiterate something you said. Yes. It's up to us, the people who look like me, to figure out the answer to that question and not ask the people who look like Pastor. This is a really, really serious challenge. And we can figure out what the four or five things that we could do tomorrow. Not tomorrow. To ourselves. Yes. Yes. Because we're the ones who have the privilege. We're the ones who have the racism. And until we really look in the mirror and see that, and then rather than talking to ourselves, find another person to talk to, whether it be another white person or another person of color, I suggest you start with another white person and struggle with the questions until you finally come up with an answer. And then try it out. Probably won't be completely right. That's how this change will come about in a room full of people who look like us. Thank you. Ed, I'm sorry. I'll get you next. I'll get you, next. You, uh, you were speaking about systemic and political racism. Yes. And as an example, you mentioned the redistricting of the school district. Yes. Could you point to a couple or three other cracks or fault lines in systems where influence or pressure uh, could be possibly fruitful? Yeah, um, I'm going to go back to the school system again, but just in a different manner. Uh, a, a couple uh, a couple of years ago, uh, we worked on together for Morris Square against C Trust. When we had some players in the community that basically sold the school system out to C Trust, so that they could come in and charterize the whole school system. As soon as I got word and looked at, I said, "Oh, this is all about gentrification in 15 years." And so we worked on, together on that, and we were able to stop that. And so there are all kinds of things that are taking place. Sister here, then this sister right here. Yeah, I was just wondering, what are your thoughts on how we can, uh, like, amongst people of color, how we can build more solidarity amongst ourselves, like, blacks, oh. and Americans, you know, just because I can't help with the math that, if we look at our numbers together, just because we have so many similarities, that yes. we can stronger, but with my, with, with my work and who I've been involved with, there's definitely silos. Yes. Uh, my thoughts are we have to understand that the system has pitted us against each other. And when we start to understand that the system has pitted us against each other and not looking at each other as the enemy or as being in competition with each other, and find out who the real enemy is, I think we can unite at that point. And so you and I can start within our communities. I exchange your information afterwards. If right. Yes. Okay, at my job, I train cashiers. Yes. And, um, we have a situation at my job. There's, there's some uh, young man of color that a lot of times doesn't do everything that he's supposed to. And I, and as a person that trains, I, I get put in a situation of, a lot of times I don't say anything because I don't want to come across as racist or anything like that. But it's something, it's things that I would expect everyone to do. So how do you approach situations where you need to tell someone the truth, but you need, but you, you still want to love them as, as you would everyone else? Does that, I don't know if that makes any sense. Yes, it makes a lot of sense. The only thing I'm going to say is fair and honestly. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not asking for you or anybody else for anything that I don't deserve. But if I'm, at a, if I'm at a job, you train me to do the job, 
You know, don't hold information back from me. Train me to do the job just as you train everybody else to do the job. And I'll prove to you nine times out of ten I can do the job. Yes, and then this is I think you said it, but I just add something to that. <laughs> and I'm, you know, I'm not trying to be flippant, no. I mean, it's just that simple. See, we can sit back and watch folks do the work. And what we don't understand is that we are participating in the destruction, not of the black community, not of the Latino community, but of America. Because if I can't breathe, you can't breathe. So who, there was someone else that just had their hand up. Yes, I'm sorry. That was me. It was kind of an answer to you. I think what we all can do, and this comes from, uh, I'm an educator, is mentor. And really, really get involved with um, teaching about this, uh, this structure of business and, and society that it, it, it's just not there for poor people to have um, role models, the modeling, and everything that, that we can provide. And nobody does that. And if you're nervous about being with a child, then go get a college student. That's my area. And let me tell you, they need people who will help them show them how to get through college mm -hmm. and how to navigate through Yes. I, I guess my comment is to the young entrepreneur uh, here. I, I think uh, perception uh, goes a long way. Uh, if the young man, I think it's a young man, mm -hmm. is not doing the job, then you're not helping him by not t telling him he's not doing the job. But if he is of the impression that you are telling him something, and there's somebody else on the job who's not being told, who is, is not a, an African American, then um, that's where the problem would come in. So uh, if you're going to you know, train him, then make sure you're training everybody else the same way you're training him. Because that, that's where the problems usually come in, when it looks like you're treating somebody else differently. Oh, could we have one more, Kelsey? Um, I think, too, any, anyone that has any kind of position of authority, or even not authority, just anybody in a white skin, because you do have the privilege of that, is to introspect, look at yourself. I know it's hard to do it, but if you really committed to elevating your own humanity, not othering people, uh, oh. is to see how am I biased? How am I actually, especially people that are in any kind of authoritative position, how am I treated or uh, giving the benefit of the doubt to some, I'm not giving it to others, how am I holding others more, uh, uh, harshly in terms of how the discipline goes. I mean, all of this research and data is there in schools, it's there on jobs, it's it's everywhere. So if you, everybody here is probably working unless, uh, you know, you don't have to work. Uh, but if you're in any kind of authoritative position, look at yourself, sit yourself down, put the mirror up and see how, because it's really it's really subtle. I mean, we, we, we're all generationally uh, affected by this. It goes back to 
absolute lynching time. It goes back to before then. So we got two sick groups, a whole nation that's sick, where you got folks that have been mistreated, have been lynched, have been done all kinds of horrible things to that community has passed that down. And then you have the white community that has watched that. So that silence now is in the form of this kind of silence that, that the Reverend is talking about. So look, look within. Look within and really work with yourself. And I'd just like to make one closing comment. I think what Kelsey said is we have to get away from the othering. If we can ever get to the point where everyone is your brother and your sister, I think we'd be far better. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.